Okay. So here's what's happening now. This is episode number nine in our series. You are the chosen one. And before we launch into it, I need to give a warning. It's quite a serious warning. And that is that this episode contains mature themes. It contains adult themes. Which means that if you're under the age of 21, well, you should be asking your parents for permission to listen to this sort of thing. And of course there's a side of me that thinks, no, you should rebel, just keep it a secret. And if you're listening to this with your kids, well then I suggest you listen to this episode first before listening to it with them. Because there are things in this episode which will not be suitable for a younger audience. And I'll also mark this episode as explicit to further indicate that. And furthermore, another extension on this warning is that I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. And all of the advice all of the information that you hear in this episode shouldn't really be taken as advice. It's not advice. Nothing should be taken as advice here. There's no how-to. There's no what you should do. There's no call to action. There's none of that here in this episode. It's simply a discussion of a story. It's an analysis of a story. And all of the information that you hear in this episode is take at your own risk. Understand in your own way. Interpret at your own risk. So the responsibility is all on you. So keep that in mind and let's launch into the rest of our story. We're up to a significant moment and there's, as always, lots of different ways we can come at this. And let's just get up to speed on our narrative for a little bit, which is that Harry's in his fourth year at school and he's in this wizard tournament where a bunch of other schools have come to visit and they're all doing these magic tasks to compete and win a championship, win the, the medal or the, what is it, the Tri-Wizard Cup. And he's been going through these tasks and it's been a lot of adventures with that. And he's come to the final task, 
which is going through this maze, facing all these things to try and capture the cup. And the winner takes the cup. And there's this other character, which we haven't said much about yet, so I'll give a bit of a spiel on him now, which is Cedric Diggory. And Diggory is the other person who's, or he's one of the people who are one of the students in this championship who's competing with Harry for the championship, for the cup. And, well, Harry's met him a couple of times, and you, you wouldn't really say they're, they're friends as such. And if we look at Diggory, we see, well, what, what, what can we make of him? He's, he's good-looking. He's tall. Tall and good-looking. So that's the, that's the first impression. He's obviously very smart, and he's quite brave. And he's pretty intelligent. And he's got a good family. His father's proud of him. That's come out earlier in the story. And he really is one of the, one of the kids at school where you think, yeah, he's just got everything going for him. Yeah, he's really just an outstanding guy in, in every way. And he's really likable. He's got a good group of friends. And a really promising future, you can see, well, this is someone who's going to be successful. You just know it. Sometimes you just know when someone's going to be successful. And he's probably going to have a happy family. And he's probably going to have, actually, a really good life. A really good life. And you can see he's at the, he's at the top of the food chain in so many ways. He's successful. He's likable. He's got a good background, a good upbringing. He's never really had any hard times in his life. And, well, how does Harry feel about this? He's competing with him. And they sort of have these backs and forths about, well, who's helping who? And Harry does this thing where he actually helps Diggory with one of the tasks by giving him information. Because Harry feels that would only be fair. And then Diggory returns the favour on another time. And there is a little bit of jealousy in Harry. He says, well, why has this guy got such a good life? He's had such supportive parents, something that Harry never had. And he's never known darkness and pain and suffering like Harry has. He's not up at all hours with these terrible dreams. And they're going through this tournament and they're sort of having these different backs and forths and in this final moment in this final task where they're working towards winning the cup well Harry actually saves him in a sort of way and Diggory sort of saves him as well and I can't remember the I can't remember the exact details one of them saves the other I think it's Harry that saves Diggory and they sort of stand up and brush each other off and they see the cup and it comes down to this final run. Which is, the person who grabs the cup first wins. And Harry says, well why don't we both take it at exactly the same time? Let's be fair. And let's not have a winner. And there's a lot of confusion, or there's a lot of different threads around this because it's starting to 
the, the sense of danger is really starting to loom because Harry has this feeling that there are other competitors in this competition that have actually killed other competitors. And there's actually a murderer on the loose. And that's the first time we start to, well, it's not the first time, but it's one of the times when we start to realize that there's something bigger than this competition going on. There's something bigger than this tournament. So what happens? This is the climax. This is the moment that the, the whole competition, the whole plot has been working towards. And Harry and Diggory, Potter and Diggory, run together along up to the cup and they grab it. And they lay their hands on it. And in that moment, what is Harry expecting? What are we all expecting? Well, what we're expecting is that the tournament will be over. Finally, what a relief. No more tasks, no more challenges, no more things going wrong, no more looming dangers, no more impossible things to overcome. Finally, we can all relax and the competition is finished. And furthermore, well, Harry's won. Harry and his friend have won. So there should be a celebration. This should be a big joy. This should be a momentous, wonderful occasion. A beautiful happening. And yet, what actually happens? Well, we know what happens, which is that the magic, the, the cup has been, had this magic spell on it, which has turned it into a, a teleporting spell. And this is actually quite a common spell. And Harry's used this, I believe it's called a port key, something like that. And Harry's had this sort of teleportation on, uh, this teleportation magic trick happened to him and his friends. And it's, it's common in the wizarding world. You put a spell on an object like a boot or a, a lamp or just a common household object. And that somehow, when you touch it, allows you to transport somewhere else. So it's used by a wizard as a mode of transport. But as it turns out, this cup is one of those. And they grab it and Harry and Cedric Diggory are transported to a completely different place. And what is this place? Well, we know where it is. And it takes a Harry to figure a while to figure out that he's actually in a graveyard. And Wormtail turns up. And Wormtail t turns up and kills Cedric Diggory. He kills him in an instant. And actually he, there's a voice that says, kill the spare. And Wormtail, in a second, murders him without even thinking about it. And that shows just how evil this Lord Voldemort is. Just so shows how evil evil is. 
someone who's a flowering person, a successful person, just a really good life with everything going for him, just cut down immediately. Life is dispensable. Life is something that can just be thrown away in a second just because it's an inconvenience. So Wormtail has this fetus sort of weak Voldemort in his arms and he kills Diggory and ties up Harry and then there's a magic spell or a magic potion that's made and that is, well, Wormtail bringing Lord Voldemort back to life. He's giving him a full body and bringing him to his full strength. And the magic spell goes something like, Bone of the Father, unknowingly given, flesh of the servant, willingly given, blood of the enemy, forcibly taken. And these three components, well, you can see that there's a textual meaning to them, which is the bone, which is solid, and then the flesh, which is gooey, and then the blood, which is liquid. So you've got solid liquid on the outer ends, and in the middle you've got the goo. And Wormtail, he actually cuts off his whole hand. And there's a significance to that, which is that he's already got a finger missing, and he lost his finger when something happened in a clash which involved him serving the Dark Lord. So it was because he was in this explosion, in this confrontation, that he lost the finger, and it was doing the work of the Dark Lord that he lost it. So now he's, he, he lost a finger, and now he's lost a hand. And the comment there is that it's taking more and more of him. More and more parts are being taken by his service to the Lord. And then the other side of this is, there's this thing with Harry and Lord Voldemort, which is that Harry has this magic in him from his mother's love. And this creates something which means that when, which meant that when Harry touched Lord Voldemort, it would burn him. And this is how he got out of his sticky situation in the first book. So anything that, any, any physical contact between Lord Voldemort and Harry meant that Voldemort would become weak. He'd die. He'd almost die. He'd be reduced to ash sort of thing, reduced to a spirit. But here, because of this spell, because of this magic potion that they're making, and because they use Harry's blood, blood of the enemy forcibly taken, then Voldemort comes back to life and he gets his body and he can now touch Harry. And now it's the other way around. When he touches Harry, it burns him. And then Voldemort puts out his call to all his followers. And a whole bunch of them turn up. 
So one of the questions we need to ask, and this is to do with our central thesis, is this. Do you want to be the chosen one? Now, it's one thing to ask, do you realize what it means to be the chosen one? It's another thing to ask, do you want to be the chosen one? And really, those two things go hand in hand. Because if we look at Harry, and we look at this situation that he's in, then we're really starting to get a picture of what is involved in being the chosen one. And look at this scene. He's tied up. He's completely helpless. He's just had a friend die. A very good man. Killed, murdered right in front of him. And now he's got his worst, evil, darkest enemy. The epitome of all evil standing in full strength standing with all his power right in front of him. And this evil Lord has all these people around him who are also on his side, there to support him. This is showtime. This is the make-or-break moment. This is the facing off. This is when it all comes to a head. And Voldemort, well, he's crazed by power. And the thing that corrupts him, and the final thing that is really his downfall, and the real comment that's made by the author, is this relationship that Voldemort has with power. And what does power mean? And it makes us ask, well, what does power mean for the rest of us? And this comes in here because Voldemort wants to prove that he's more powerful than Harry. He doesn't want to kill him when he's helpless. He wants to kill him in a fight, in a duel. So Voldemort actually unties Harry and says, well, here's a wand and let's fight and let's have it out man to man, wizard to wizard. And I'll show you that I can beat you because I'm so much better than you. It's so important that everyone knows that Voldemort is the most powerful. So everyone else just stands around. And they have their wands and they cast their spells and then it happens. And this is where we actually diverge into our deep analysis for today, at this point in the story. Because there is a lens which we can look at this scene through, which tells us how to make perfect sense of it. And not only that, but it actually brings this exact scenario into the realm of possibilities for our actual lives. 
what I'm telling what I'm telling you is that you can experience this exact moment that Harry is experiencing here. And of course, when I say exact, well, it's not exactly exact. It's a complicated comparison that we're making. And there's a lot to it which we have to distill and clarify and a lot of different threads we need to piece together. But just take a moment to realize that I'm telling you, you can experience this. And in many ways, if you are the chosen one, or because you are the chosen one, you will experience this. You have to experience this. But let me break this down. Let me sort of explain this out carefully. When I say you can experience it, there are really two ways in which I mean that. In one way, you can experience the components of what is happening here to Harry, but not all at once. So this scene where Harry's facing off with Voldemort has multiple components to it, and they're all happening at once. And what you can do is actually just take one of the components in a less intense way and then experience that. And then on the other hand, there is a way to experience all of the components at once. And they won't be in exactly the same way in which Harry does, but they'll have the same quality to them. And I think as we keep working this out and keep talking this through, that will become clear. Now, would you really want this kind of experience? Just in the same way, do you really want to be the chosen one? If this is what it entails, would you say yes to this sort of experience? Well, let me tell you how you can have this experience. There's a substance on this planet, which is a chemical, and it's a drug, which can give you the experience that Harry is having right here in this story. And it's considered by many to be the most powerful drug on the face of the planet. When we talk about drugs, there's a lot that we need to understand. There's a lot that we need to know. And we're going to go through it step by step. And this drug, which I have in mind, which bears so many similar components, so, so many similar descriptions to it, to what's happening here, that it just makes sense to say that this is what's happening is called DMT. This is a tryptamine. Dimethylindiatryptamine is what it's called. And if you just type in DMT, the God particle or the God molecule, and you'll find out all about it. 
from your search engine. And tryptamines are a class of drug. There's a whole bunch of associated chemicals, such as the psilocybin mushroom, the ayahuasca, LSD, and there are other forms of DMT. So you've got NNDMT or your 5-MeO-DMT and a whole bunch of others like that. And it's a, po- it's a highly potent chemical and it's distilled from plants. It's actually in nature. It's a naturally occurring chemical. So it's not, well, you can have the synthetic or distilled version. And, and basically what, what DMT is, is distilled from plants and isolated from plants. And really the boundary between synthetic and natural, well, that becomes very blurry when we talk about chemistry. And this, this substance is, is so potent. It's so potent that, that less than half a gram can cause you to face, face off with Lord Voldemort. Half a gram, even less than half a gram. I'm talking about the size of a, a third of a corn kernel. So you know what corn is? You take one of those kernels, those little, little yellow things, and you cut that into three. Three even parts. And the size of just one of those parts delivered effectively. Now we can talk about delivery methods because there's a whole bunch of different ways it can be delivered, administered. And that will give you an experience. And the experience will have all the things in common that are happening to Harry right now. Think about it. Let's go through them. What's happening to Harry? He's facing off with Lord Voldemort. He's got his wand. He's shot his spell. And the electricity has gone out of his wand. And Voldemort has then shot his to Harry's and the electricity has collided. And the electricity is a different color for each of them. It's a different shape and it's shooting out all over the place. There is electricity everywhere. And this is the epitome of dualities colliding. Two opposites, good and evil, clashing right in the middle. And then what's another component? We have characters. We have all the Death Eaters standing around, evil people, supporting evil. And then what happens? Some characters come out of Harry's wand. And it's the good people. It's the people that are speaking very clearly to him. They're encouraging him. We're saying, we're here for you. And this inner world, now there are techniques that you can use to actually isolate people in your inner world and find the difference between an actual person and what you think about a person. And I demonstrated this in the series, speaking to the nameless. So just talking to them is one way of seeing how a person in your interior world occupies your interior world. And then you can start to discover the relationship between them 
and their place in your interior world. But here in this situation, after just having some DMT, or in Harry's case, being transported to another world, there are characters all around and they seem so real and they're saying certain things. Another component is the lack of safety of the situation. Harry is in mortal danger right now. And the same thing occurs when you're on DMT. In fact, you in, it, correctly administered, you die on DMT. Everything is gone. Everything is, is completely wiped off. And if there's a shred of fear, then, well, it, it's, it's a death. It's as tragic as death. And furthermore, well, think of the DMT trip and it happens so quickly. It's one of those drugs. I mean, I mean, some drugs come on gradually, like the mushrooms and the LSDs, they come on gradually, but DMT is very sudden and it's just like, boom, being shot into another world, just like Harry was from this port key and this magic cup. So that's another similar characteristic. And it's a totally different world. One minute he's in this wizard tournament expecting to be celebrating. The next minute he's in a graveyard. And another component of this scene is that there's going to be a final outcome. This is the decider. Now we know in this part of the narrative there's not a deciding sort of factor. And you do find, actually, when you're on DMT, there is, there is no finality to it because you do come down, you do come back from that world. But when you're in it, you feel that this is the deciding factor. This is where things either clash or they don't. And yet another component, which is the confusion of this self and other. Because at this stage, Harry is having more dreams about the dark side and he's been having the feeling that there's darkness in him and now we know there is an intimate connection between him and Voldemort because Voldemort has taken his blood. He's got his blood in his veins. So in some ways, Voldemort is partly Harry and Harry is partly Voldemort. So who is who and where is the person? And if you have evil in you and you take DMT, you will be confronting it with the same fear and the same ferociousness that Voldemort confronts Harry. And there is one thing which is different, which is in this scene, Harry is holding on. He's holding on to his wand and it's shaking it's, it's The electricity is burning, burning, burning. He feels like his arms might fall off, his bones might shatter, and there's still electricity going out all over the place. It's shooting up, it's shooting down, he doesn't know, he's sort of starting to levitate off the ground, he doesn't know which way is up or down, and he's just holding on for dear life. And some people approach DMT like that, 
and they get severely punished for it. Because if you hold on when you're on your DMT trip, well, there's, there's just no way. It's just not possible. You just have to let go. You have to allow it to do what it wants to, to, to you. And you can really get a sense that it's not, it's not a drug. This is why they call it the God molecule. Because you realize when you're on DMT that DMT is not a drug. It's an entity. It's a spiritual entity which comes to you and it does things to you. Even though paradoxically, those things are inside you. You and, 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 and your entities and otherworldliness and spirits and all these things, they're all mixed up in this big bunch. They're all, all over this place. Like we can ask, is Harry just imagining these people coming out of the wand? Are they just a part of his imagination? Well, that sort of question is long gone. That sort of question is completely out the window. So Harry's holding on and he's shaking. And really, well, maybe for the purposes of this narrative, he does need to hold on. Maybe this is the one thing which is different between the, an actual DMT trip and this scene. But as soon as it starts, well, he comes down. A connection is broken. And there are a whole bunch of things breaking and the other Death Eaters start fighting and he runs away and he makes his break away. And he manages to get back and find his way to the teleportation again and get to Hogwarts, get to safety. So that's the comparison, that's the experiential comparison between what it's like to trip on DMT and what it's like for Harry to face off with Lord Voldemort. And I hear this question coming up again, which is snuck up a couple of times. Does J.K. Rowling know this? Is this where she gets the idea from? Because it fits so well. It fits so easily. And the answer is not... Well, the answer is it's irrelevant what she knows. And we do have to be careful here because remembering that psychedelic analysis or looking at something through the psychedelic framework is just one framework. And just because it fits doesn't mean that that's where it comes from. And it can be a trap to say, well, let's just analyze everything as psychedelics. Everything is drugs. Everything fits into the psychedelic story. But that's also a trap. So think of this more as just a, a fun way of looking at it or a, or a different way of looking at this scene. And whether J.K. Rowling got the idea from being on drugs herself or knowing about the psychedelic literature or some other place doesn't really matter. Now, I do need to expand on 
this thing of drugs, this thing of chemicals. And this is a story which is ongoing, and it's a conversation which is ongoing. So let me just lay out some of the basics here. If we think of drugs, then we have a few protect we so we have a few antagonists or a few entities that are sort of working against each other and see ask yourself where you fit into this because you're going to fit into more of these than others and some of these more than others and some of these are going to resonate differently to you so if i'm telling you this story and we're talking about harry potter and comparing it to the dmt trip and it's triggering something in you then hear out this sort of ABC explanation of drugs as antagonists. So when we talk about drugs, we need to understand a few things. On the one hand, we have government laws, which is what the governments say about drugs. And that's one big antagonist. And each country is different. And there are lots of nuances there. But largely, majoritively, the attitude of the government laws is drugs are bad. They should not be tolerated. They should be completely wiped out. And anyone who's using them, selling them, or making them should be given a huge penalty, a hefty penalty. And that's government laws. Now, on the other hand, we have science. And science is, well, it's the scientific process. It's research. It's controlled experiments. It's data analysis, data collecting. It's hypothesis testing, and so on. The scientific process, the scientific method. And strangely enough, government laws and the scientific method have not always been friends with each other. They're not always on speaking terms. And even now, they don't get along very well. And I'll expand more on that in a minute. minute. But... This idea that, oh, the government is scientific and science and society is the right thing, well, that doesn't hold up at all in this conversation. Now, another antagonist we have is the popular opinion. So we've got government laws on one hand, science on the other, and then we've got the popular opinion. The layman's opinion. What's your opinion on this? How do you feel about this? What do you want to say about this? Just the common folk. And you notice that this also is totally different to government laws. Because the popular opinion is going to have people at one end of our spectrum or one corner of our cubic spectrum (laughs) saying... Well, the government is right. We should do what the government says. Well, it's against the law to have drugs. So drugs are bad. And then maybe in another corner of our spectrum cube, we'll have people saying, yeah, drugs are cool. Yeah, freedom. 
Yeah, everyone do drugs. The world just needs some more drugs because then we would be more relaxed. Fuck the government. Yeah. This sort of attitude. And then there's another corner in our cube, which is actually the meditators. And those interested in psychedelics for the purposes of consciousness expanding. And that gets into the nuances of, well, what drugs are classed as psychedelics and which are not. And we can make the argument, well, why is alcohol so widely spread and used and socially acceptable when it's so destructive? And yet these tryptamines, which are when used properly and cultivated with a meditative practice and for the purposes of consciousness, very spiritual drugs suppressed. Why are they suppressed? And if we go back to our science, then there's really two sides to this, which is there's a growing research. There's a growing amount of research and there's a growing body which is relating to these substance in a more and more mature way. And as government laws change, then more science is allowed to creep in. And originally, well, science was actually on its way to doing the research. Science was doing the research. Science was making some headway. And yet, all of a sudden, the popular opinion somehow overdid the government. So, if we think of, I mean, we can portray like government laws are one thing on one hand, and then popular opinion is secondary. But no, it's more like the chicken or the egg, because popular opinion then also influences what the politicians do, because the politicians want to get elected. And then that affects, well, what the science does and what the science can't do. And there's always also that old thing of how much information is available. How much knowledge do you have on this subject? And we can put this popular opinion antagonist into our spectrum and we can say, well, one corner of our cube spectrum has people that have no knowledge at all. And then in another corner, which is maybe an opposite corner to that, we have the people that have a lot of information on this. And they know the scientists that are doing the research. They know the people that are talking about it. They know the people that have experimented with it in a scientific way. They've read the books about it. There's a, there's a whole literature on it. And that's something that's a nuance to this conversation. And the scientists, well, they sort of have this trick. And I mean, if we can speak so crudely about it, it's such a, it's such a broad topic, science. Their job is really bridging the subjective and the objective. And this is nowhere more obvious than in the world of scientific, uh, in the world of psychedelic research. Because... 
on the one hand, the scientist is saying, well, we're giving you this chemical and the chemical is, well, 1612 N12C2, something like that. He's got this scientific mathematical formula. Methylendiatryptamine, that's the scientific name. And I'm going to put an EEG on your head and I'm going to tell you your brain waves. And we're going to do north, north hemisphere, south hemisphere, left and right brain, and we're going to put it onto a map and it's going to be this big data wave and you'll see these lines. And I'll do a report on it. And I'll give you your numbers and your percentages. So that's like the objective side. That's the empirical side. And the scientist is going to give this test study, this drug, and then when they come back from the drug, they're going to be saying like, whoa, man, that was amazing. I was in this graveyard and I fought Lord Voldemort and, and my parents, my dead parents were there and there are all these evil people casting spells on me and there was electricity coming out of my wand and I was holding on and the electricity, it had... It had multiple shapes to it, multiple colors to it, and then we were rising off the floor. Wow, what an experience. And the scientist is going to be saying, well, how do we then bridge this story, this blabbering story that he said, with these numbers? And this is the subjective and the objective. And then there are ways to do that, because actually what you can do is you can do this with 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, and then get all of their stories and then say, well, what are the common threads to these stories? And they might say, well, actually, there are people that felt like there was an entity there that was a person that was different to me. And it felt like there was a colliding of two dualities. And I felt really unsafe. It felt like something final was about to happen or happening. And it was a definitely a different world to this one. It's not this world here. I was in a totally different world. I was on another planet. So on. So the psychedelic literature, well, it has a lot of the, the personal story entwined in it. But we can get different things out of it which are scientific and which are distilled from large case studies. And I don't, and, and really like, that it's so much a personal journey. Like you would never want to, like it's not like Harry's going to come back to Hogwarts and say, okay, now ladies and gentlemen, how do we teach this on the curriculum? Like, do you, can you imagine, can you imagine Harry, he's, he's come back from this and he's got Cedric's dead body the Lord Voldemort has risen. He comes back and then he walks up to Dumbledore and says, now we need to be teaching the students about this. Now we need to be creating scenarios in which they can experience that for themselves. No, that's not going to happen. That's not the case at all. And that's possibly the misunderstanding between the popular, one of the, one of the misunderstandings between popular opinion and the seriousness or the uniqueness of this experience. So the popular opinion confuses that, well, we have this sacred experience, this intense experience, and now we want that to permeate throughout the rest of our lives. And they say, no, 
That's a terrible idea. We don't want to always live in that state. We don't want to have everyone having this experience. But the question of how that unique experience permeates into the rest of our lives is more complex than it first appears. It's more complex than we can first say and than we can first understand. And for many people, it's like Harry. We don't come back and say, now we need to teach it on the curriculum. They come back and they're completely disorientated. And in many ways, very hurt. And there's this, and, and here's another thing. Well, for some people, there's this dramatic piece of information. And this is something people who experiment with psychedelics need to understand. He comes, Harry comes back and he says, there's an evil spirit. There's the evil Lord out there and everyone needs to know that he's risen to power. There is evil out there and it's very important. And if you have your trip, then you might come back with a message and it might be positive, it might be negative. But the point is that it's alarmist. It's a serious, a serious information that everyone seriously must definitely know. And the person who's had that individual experience is then pushing it out onto everyone else. So the tryptamines are a very unique class of psychedelics. And they're very different to, say, the amphetamines, experientially. And, of course, there are many drugs, depressants, stimulants, tranquilizers, and so on, that affect many different parts of the body, and many of them not in good ways. And these drugs, well, they should be curbed. They should be understood. They should have more education on them. And for us to really be mature about this, well, it's the same as in any way we be mature. We have more information is the first step. And then the second step is more knowledge which is turning information from just something bland, something factual, into something practical or something a little closer to home. And then after more knowledge, we need more wisdom. And the wisdom is really the deep resolve that comes from experience. And experience is the skewer of information, knowledge, and wisdom. And if you are the chosen one, and that means you've been chosen to have an experience which is out of this world. It 
means you've been chosen to have an experience which will deeply affect your entire sense of who you are. It will completely shake your inner world. And you need to understand that that doesn't mean necessarily taking DMT. Because there are many experiences that are like that, which have multiple components happening to them. And for some people, well, they're chosen to work with just the components one at a time. For some people, life isn't a climax where everything happens at once like it is with Harry. Some of us need to work with our dead parents or family members while there's nothing else happening. And then we need to work with our electricity. And then we need to work with our safety. And then we need to work with our psychology and our emotions. And all these are done separately in their own time. That's a very solid way of making progress in your inner world. And the downside of these intense experiences is that it requires a very long time to integrate them. It takes a lot of picking up the pieces afterwards. And for many people, it's not right to take DMT. And I will mention if you're listening to this, that, well, you might be thinking, what an amazing experience, I'd like to do that. And on the other hand, well, maybe you're thinking, who on earth would ever want to go anywhere near such stuff? But either way, what you can do is you can get a taste of it by simply looking at the artworks of Alex Gray. So Alex Gray is very famous, and he is, well, he's a psychedelic artwork. He's a psychedelic artist. And what he does is he takes these substances, and he goes to these other worlds, and then he comes back, and he does a painting so that he can show us what it's like. And it's really worth checking out his paintings. They are amazing. I mean, he's hit the big time. He's a very famous painter now, very successful because of this. And they're really something to look at because you see, you see the components, you see the electricity, and you see the dualities colliding, and you see this collapse of who is who. So some of them, some of these artworks, they have like a face, and the face will then morph sort of down at the neck outwards and around and then into another face, which is then facing the face. So it's like two faces are facing each other, but they're also connected. And then there's a face, which is, if you look at it from one way, it's facing you face on. But then if you look at it in another way, it's a face face on the side. So where is the face and where is it turning and what is it? Who is who and this sort of thing. So that's a component of the inner world fireworks, which we talked about, which is the like the connection of Voldemort having Harry's blood in him and Harry having a bit of Voldemort in him. And we find out later, well, Harry 
quite literally has a piece of Voldemort in him because he's done the Horcrux magic, which broke off a piece of Voldemort and put it in Harry's soul. We find that out later on. But this this comes back to this thing of the, the inner world and who is who is dissolving. And there are all sorts of different visuals. And if you look at the Alex Gray artwork, you can sort of, there's, if you look at it the right way and you have a sensitivity in your eyes, then you can actually see the movement. You can feel the movement because the eye tries to work out the contrast and the lines and it starts to like like have this humming sort of like they're going back and forth with uh, yeah, movement and flowing and it can't really focus on where's up and where's down. So if you're interested in DMT, then, well, just take a look at some of the artworks that Alex Gray has done. And then the other component also of his artworks is is the sex. So there are art there's an artwork which he has of a man and a woman having sex and it's got the infinity line in it. And it's sort of this very sacred sort of sexual position that they're in. And then another one of course has the dark side so it's not all good it is dark side. And Alex Gray is very much aware of this. And he has him, or the the character, and he's having sex, but the sex is, is like a dark sex. It's like he's being raped by this evil witch, by this evil spirit. And there's another one where he's sort of in the dark world and he's shackled down and the outside world is very bright. So... Yeah, there's a vast complexity to the psychedelic world as a separate world. And then there's also a vast literature to how we translate between the psychedelic world and this world. And those are different things. Those are different conversations. Because we can ask the question, well, what, I mean, what does this mean? I mean, that really is a, the psychedelic question. What does it mean that there's another world out there? What does it mean that with just a, a third of a gram of salt, it's basically a salt, a third of a gram of this chemical, we're suddenly in another world where there are characters and they're doing magic tricks, they're doing impossible things. And they're a part of us, but they're also not part of us. And it's this big story. It's this huge, long story. And there are talking animals. And there are giants. And there are all these other stories. And some people die. And on and on it goes. How, how do we make sense of that? Like, what on earth is going on? So I think that's enough to chew on for today. And the final thing I'll add about psychedelics is do your research. Really find out a lot about it. Because 
You don't want to be the person who has an opinion on the end of the spectrum which doesn't know much. And the scientific body, which is relating to psychedelics, is growing. It's already growing. So you can find scientists talking about this, many of them, in many countries. And it's going to become more and more of a thing. And there's obviously plenty of people talking about it online. And I just thought, well, when I saw this scene in Harry Potter, I thought, well, there's a comparison there to be made. And it doesn't work with every scene in Harry Potter. We can't, we can't do the psychedelic literature on the whole narrative. I don't, I don't want to do that. I mean, we could. In a, in a sense, we could do that. But I don't want to do that. It's just one little example of psychedelic literature that we're talking about here. So if it's comfortable for you to do so right now, I invite you to finish off this episode with just sitting quietly for a few minutes. And that's all I have to say for now.